Good morning, Bethel. Man, nothing but the blood. That is good news. All right, well, we are studying through the book of Isaiah, and our scripture reading for this morning comes from Isaiah chapter 6. So if you don't have a Bible, there's one looks like this in the pew in front of you, and you can find the text, I think, on page 571. Uh, We're going to read that together, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll dive into our study. So Isaiah chapter 6, the whole chapter here, we're going to read, and then I'll pray. Please stand with me in honor of God's word. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy. And blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn, and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land." And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. You may be seated. Let me just also give a brief here, a brief word. I meant to say this when we showed the picture of the the children. Next Sunday morning at 9 a.m., 
typically the fifth Sunday of the month is a missions emphasis week. And so at 9 a.m., we typically have um, either a missionary that's in town or some local ministry that we're highlighting. And so next Sunday at 9 a.m. in this room right over here, we're going to have a presentation by the Mid-Atlantic Orphan Coalition. This little seminar is not just for those of you who are interested in fostering or adopting. It's for all of us, okay? So please, I'd encourage all of you to prioritize that 9 a.m. time and come because we all need a greater heart, God's heart, adopting gracious heart toward needy children. And as the Lord raises um, awareness and concern, there's already folks in our body who have, have loved little children like this and brought them in as foster parents and adopted children, which is wonderful. We want that to grow. We want to embrace that as a church family, not just a few token families. We want to all embrace that vision and encourage it, even if we don't personally um, foster or adopt a child. So please, all of you, I encourage you to come. Um, I've heard this presentation before, and it's excellent. Um, So 9 a.m. right over here uh, on Sunday morning next week. Okay, Isaiah 6. As we enter into this passage, which is a fairly familiar passage, even though Isaiah is a big book and there's a lot of stuff that's hard to understand, as we head into chapter 6, maybe this is one of the most familiar passages. And I want you to think about something as we go through and study this chapter together. In your life, as you think about times where you've been called to, to do something, maybe it's a hard thing, maybe it's an uncomfortable thing, maybe it's something you don't feel like doing, especially when it's the right thing, where does willingness come from? Where does willingness come from to do the hard things, to do the uncomfortable things, to get out of your comfort zone, to follow Jesus with a new obedience? Where where does the, the strength, the eagerness, the willingness, the heart come from to do that? Well, keep those questions in mind as we walk through chapter 6 here. There is a little outline in your bulletin, or I think the slides will come up for each point. Look first at verses 1 to 4, and let's behold the the glory of our holy God. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. He had a vision in the temple. It's the Lord's prophet here. He saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train, actually, there were not trains. Um, Kings didn't have trains at that time in the ancient Near East, so hem of his robe is probably a better translation, um, which means all the more that God is big and awesome because it's just the hem (laughs) that's filling the temple, okay? Okay. So the Lord, sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. That term, these angelic kind of supernatural beings, that term means something like burning ones, these fiery beings. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Now, where are we located here in history? 
There's the little marker right off the bat in the year that King Uzziah died. If you look back, you don't have to turn there, but 2 Chronicles 26, history of, of ancient Israel. Uzziah reigned for a long time, starting at age 16. He reigned for 52 years in Jerusalem. For most of the beginning of his reign, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and he sought the Lord, and the Lord blessed him and prospered um, the kingdom under his rule. His fame spread as a king to the border of Egypt. He became very strong. But then, interesting, interestingly, in verse 15, it says this, His fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped by the Lord till he was strong. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction, for he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and then it goes on to explain how. So this king would have, and this is like everybody would have prospered under, under this king. Things went really well under this king. So when this king died, and especially as some of the, the kind of political military threats were rising around them, this would have been a time of great uncertainty. And so at that time, when even though materially they were prospering, spiritually they had become poor and weak, at that time, Isaiah was in the temple, and he saw the true king, the great king that was alive and well, and he's seated, not pacing. He's seated on the throne, high and lifted up, exalted. Okay, the temple, what was the temple for? It symbolized the place where God met with his people. The, the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies, that was his special presence with his people. And in other places, it talks about how he's enthroned on the cherubim. Okay? So basically, the, the Ark of the Covenant would be like his footstool of his divine throne. Okay? So his feet come down and you see the hem of his robe. Okay? Just if you get the picture there. So he's enthroned there, ruling over his people. And in this vision, Isaiah sees these heavenly beings, these seraphim, these burning ones. And with their wings, they're covering their eyes, their face, and their feet. And they're calling to one another. And at their voice, not the voice of the Lord, but the voice of his creatures, there's like an earthquake. And the temple is shaking. The foundations are shaken. And the temple fills with smoke, which is oftentimes typical of the, the presence of the Lord in the temple. Listen to what they say, holy, holy, holy. And that's repetition for emphasis, okay? You find this quite a bit in the Old Testament. They didn't have bold face. They didn't have underline, you know, in the ancient Near East. So repetition is what said, this is really important. So listen to two examples where terms are doubled for the sake of emphasis. Genesis 2, and the Lord God commanded the man, this is in the garden, saying, you may, English translation says, surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Do you know what it says in Hebrew? It says, you may eat, eat. Eat freely. You can really eat. It emphasizes the, the freedom and the lavish provision that God had made. And then the warning don't eat of this one tree, because you will die, die. You will surely die. 
or Isaiah 26 to stay in Isaiah. Probably love that promise, some of you. Isaiah 26, 3, that says, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Guess what that is in Hebrew? Peace, peace. You keep him in peace, peace, like really peaceful peace. Peace that passes understanding peace. Okay? Now, this is the only time here in Isaiah 6 that an adjective is trebled. So, what does it mean that the Lord is holy? He obviously is holy. He's holy, 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 not just holy. So, what comes to mind when you hear the term holiness? Do you think of purity? Do you think of moral uprightness? Do you maybe think of being a being that commands, you know, some odd and weird rituals and unsearchable standards or unreachable standards, I should say? Well, certainly the holiness of God can refer to and include his moral purity. But at the root of that word for holy or holiness, there is an idea of separating or cutting off and setting aside, separating something. So sometimes, you know, there were things in the temple that were holy, like even the holy shovel that, you know, um, took out the ashes from the, the altar. Well, it's because it's set apart for special use, separate, okay? They weren't for common use. So God is holy in that he is set apart or separate, but what does that mean? Well, at the core, to say that God is holy is to say that he's God. <laughs> well, that's really helpful. Um, can you unpack that a little bit? It means he has no equal, that there's no one like him. So there's no one like him is the, the kind of negative way of saying that he's holy. He's in a class by himself. He's unique. He's the incomparable one. He is God. Okay, it's, it's a way of talking about God's godness. He's utter, utterly unique. He's singular. And his holiness characterizes all of his attributes. It's not just one of his attributes, like justice or power or wisdom. It's descriptive of his entire nature. So all of who he is is utterly unique and in a class by himself. Love, mercy, power, everything. Listen to 1 Samuel 2, 2. There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. He's in a class by himself. See it? So holy is the positive way of saying there's no one like him. Now, do you see in the text there what the seraphim are saying, that there's a connection between God's holiness and his glory? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of, Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. What's the connection there? Well, holiness is the... Is everybody awake? You've got to track with me here, okay? Holiness is the essence or the substance of glory. And glory is the manifestation of holiness. It's glory is holiness gone public. God is holy in his being, and when he reveals it, what we see is glory. Okay, so 
that still might be kind of like esoteric and abstract. So let me just give a few examples. I think I've given a couple of these before. Um, why do I want to go to Northern California? Because I want to see the redwoods. Why do I want to see the redwoods? Because of the glory of their holiness. There's no trees like them. And when you see that uniqueness, especially if you're standing at the bottom, which I haven't yet, you might be seeing this tree, good grief, 36 feet in diameter, 379, like twice the size of the, of the Statue of Liberty, less the foundation. It's unbelievable. So there's this glory, there's this weightiness, this substance to things that are in a class by themselves. Okay? So we are actually wired as human beings for superlatives because we're wired for God. We love the things that are best and greatest and singular. Those are the things that have the most weight and substance. So what are you awed and amazed by, impressed with? Okay, what kinds of things do you, how do you end these sentences typically? You've got to see, I've never seen anything like it. Do you see? We, we praise, we, we worship, we are in awe of things that are glorious because of their holiness. We do this with food. Sadly, we do this sometimes more with food than with God. I have never tasted anything, you know, like this passionate praise and commendation. And then, oh, is it lunchtime yet? Like, or it's so hard to actually open the Bible. So, again, we need to see. We need this vision. We need to see God in all of his glory. So this, this message of the holiness of God, the glory of God, is at the core of the book of Isaiah. Over and over and over again, God is compared to the nations, the idols, all the competition for our affection, our, you know, things that we run to for refuge and help and strength and whatever. He says, they, they're nothing compared to me. They can't do anything for you. He alone is holy in his beauty, his love, his might. He's the holy creator. He's the holy sovereign. He's the holy savior. Who's heard of a God like you who acts for those who wait for him? All these other gods, we've got we to drag them around. We've got to work for them. So holiness is God's otherness, his utter uniqueness and godness. Okay? And when his holiness goes public, we see glory. And guess what? The earth is full of it. We need him to open our eyes to see it. Okay? So if you get this holy glory connection, what happens is as we see God for who he is, we will see how pathetic are all the things that we have treasured in his place compared to him. Because a lot of the stuff that we treasure is good, these are good things, but then we turn them into God things. And that always short circuits, 
All sin is a trading down. It's a dark exchange. Worshiping and serving created things rather than the holy, 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 glorious creator. So Isaiah saw the Lord in all of his glory, and look what happened. Verse 5, Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am lost, which is probably a little too weak. Could translate that as, I am undone. I am utterly ruined. I'm coming apart at the seams. I'm disintegrating. Why did that happen? Why did he feel that way in the presence of this holy God? Two reasons the text give, give us. He gives us here. For I am one, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. In the light of his holiness and radiance, I see my sin. Unclean lips, which are evidence of an unclean heart. Out of the overflow of the mouth, or out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And then secondly, because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Barry Webb writes this, he's a commentator. It's remarkable to see the prophet identify himself so completely with those sins he has been denouncing in the previous chapters. If you've been here, chapter 5 was filled with woes. And, and the sin of the people around him was just rank and horrible and rebellious. And now he gets in God's presence and all the relativity of sin and comparison just drops away and he says, woe, he's pronouncing it on himself now. Webb says, in the presence of God, degrees of sin become irrelevant. It is the holiness of God which reveals to us our true condition, not comparison with others. Okay, so he knows in the light of God's white-hot holiness that he is ruined. He knows that no one can see God and live. So this is what happens when God's holiness and our sinfulness move from mere concepts to experiential realities. This is what happens when you know you're a sinner. Not just know you're a sinner. So as the text continues, it seems as if Isaiah is a goner. Look at verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. So what are you thinking if you're Isaiah right here? If some fiery, burning being at whose voice the earth quakes and the threshold shake starts flying toward you with a burning coal from the fire on the altar, what do you think what, what is going to happen? I am toast. Verse 7, and he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So he says, woe is me. I'm coming apart at the seams. And this awesome seraphim approaches with a burning coal. I'm going to die. Quaking and trembling. But rather than taking away Isaiah's life, God takes away his guilt. So how sweet would that have been to Isaiah? <laughs> How surprising, maybe, how wonderful, how relieving, how freeing. This atonement here is not 
a concept merely in Isaiah's mind. It's a reality in his experience. He tasted the sweetness of atonement. So, I don't know if you've caught the repetition here yet, but we need to move from concept to reality of God's character, of our sinfulness, and of the sweetness of atonement. So do you know the sweetness of atonement? Have you tasted the goodness of the mercy of the Lord? Is it a reality for you or, not, or just a concept? So atonement is covering our sin and guilt. Remember back in chapter 1, we, I think we sung it. Come, let's reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, I'll wash them white as snow. If you have a great debt and somebody says, I got you covered, I will cover that debt. I'm going to take care of it. That's almost, almost in a sense to trivialize it, but it's not because our sin is like a debt before God. And we have got to pay up and we've got nothing to pay. And so the Lord Jesus died on the cross, shed his blood so that God says, I will cover that sin. I'll take away your guilt. Have you, do you just know that in your head? Have you tasted that and experienced it? Listen to a couple quotes. This is so important. If nothing else, I just, we should come away from this morning praying. I want to see your glory. I want to see myself and be honest with, honest with myself for who I really am. And I want to taste how sweet the gospel is. So listen to these quotes, first by Richard Baxter. He lived back in the 1600s. He said, to speak of regeneration, being born again, of faith, when a man has no spiritual understanding of these things, is to talk of the sweetness of honey when we never tasted it, or of the excellencies of such a country which we were never in, but know by maps only. If you know the truths of God but by books, by authors only, and your, your own heart feels not the power of these things, you are but as the conduit that lets out wine or refreshing water to others, but you yourself taste not of it, or like the hand that directs the passengers, but you yourself stand still. To pick up on that last image, C.S. Lewis made this point. He said, like the, those like myself whose imagination far exceeds their obedience are subject to a just penalty. We easily imagine conditions far higher than any we have really reached. If we describe what we have imagined, we may make others and make ourselves believe that we have really been there. And then Philip Brooks, Phillips Brooks, used an analogy of a train conductor, I've mentioned this one before, who comes to believe that he's been to the places he announces because of how long he's been saying the names. Is that where we're at with these great truths? Is We're really familiar with them. We've talked about them a lot, but maybe we've never been there or we've just been there very infrequently. Let's never be satisfied with just concepts. We want experience. We want to experience God in all of His glory. We want to experience a real understanding of our need and 
really taste the sweetness of the atonement. One last one. Jonathan Edwards, he, he used an illustration of honey. And he had two men. One who was born without um, a sense of taste. So the one who has, a sense of, who has a sense of taste loves honey because he's tasted it. The one who was born without the sense of taste loves honey because of its color and its texture. But Edward says, honey is sweet and wonderful because of its taste, not because of its viscosity or its color. If you haven't tasted honey, you don't really know honey. So is atonement a reality for you or is it just a concept? Look at what happens when it's a reality. Point four, reflexive willingness. Verse eight. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then Isaiah said, Oh, here I am. Send me. We need to see that Isaiah is a prototype of the new people that God was wanting to create. In chapter 6, his experience serves as an example. It serves as an illustration of what the people of God need to go through in order to be renewed and restored and blessed. The mess of, of the first five chapters, if there's going to be any hope, it needs to be through the pattern that Isaiah has just walked through, the experiences that Isaiah has just walked through. So here, the servant of the Lord, he's unclean, he's undone, he deserves to disintegrate, and yet by this merciful atonement, it was nothing he did, right? It was God's mercy there. His sin is atoned for, and then he's this willing and even qualified, again, not because of anything in him, servant and witness. He's ready to go. So where did that willingness come from? (laughs) To go back to the initial question. Do you think, please, I I hope that we all see this very, very clearly, because we need to take it with us and, and see what we need as we walk through this week, next week, the rest of our lives. Do you think it's at all possible that our willingness to respond in obedience to God is at all tied to how real His holiness is to us, how real our sinfulness is to us, and how real and sweet His atoning grace is to us. Do you think there's any connection there? Obviously, yes. So if there's reluctance in us, if there's indifference in us, if there's rebellion and resistance in us to following Jesus, maybe one of those first three things, maybe all of those first three things aren't as real to us as they should be. So the answer is not to say, oh man, I really just, you know, Shoot, I just need to be more willing. No, don't. Don't just screw up obedience in your own strength, on your own steam. You'll burn out. 
if the willingness and the reluctance, willingness isn't there if reluctance, reluctance or, or you just kind of want to run away characterizes you, you need to see. You need to really see God's glory, your sin, and the wonder of his grace. You need to taste and see. And when that happens, when it becomes real, a reality, not just a concept, and it's huge and wonderful to us, God is huge. To be honest, our sin is huge, which means the grace of atonement is huge and wonderful. Then guess what? We will actually, we're not going to burn out, we'll gladly be burned up in the service of others. We might even start talking like the Apostle Paul. Philippians 2, he says, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. How do you talk like that? That's crazy. Crazy talk. He just gladly gave himself up, took all kinds of risks for the sake of getting the gospel and ministering to so many, loving so many. How could he talk that way? Because God was really, really big. His sin was really big. He's the chief of sinners. And he really knew the sweetness of mercy and the atoning grace of of God through Christ. So how do you respond to this? As you hear, as you see this vision, as you hear the word, how do you respond to this? Sadly, the people of Israel in Isaiah's day were so rebellious and hard that Isaiah's calling and his message was a very hard one. Look at verse 9. And the Lord said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Here's your job description, Isaiah. Make the heart of this people dull and make their ears heavy and blind, blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. You want that job? That is a hard calling. Isaiah's preaching of the truth would actually harden his hearers. The Puritans used to say, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. Isaiah had seen the great holy God, and he speaks all over the place of all these, you know, there's all these windows of light breaking in and the servant in Isaiah 53 and there's all this hope, but they just didn't have ears to, see, ears to hear it. They just, shut up, prophet. With certain people, Jesus' ministry was precisely the same. In John 8, 45, listen to what he said. He said, but because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. It's not despite the fact that I tell you the truth, you don't believe me. It's precisely because you're so hardened to the truth that you don't have ears to hear it. In fact, this text is quoted in John 12. You can flip over there. John chapter 12 Verse 37, it's on page 899 in the Pew Bible. 
John writes this, though Jesus had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Why? So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? It's a quote from Isaiah 53. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Really hard pill to swallow. It's a hard message, a hard calling. So Isaiah responds to this commission. Verse 11, he says, how long? How long do I have to do this? How long is this going to happen? That there's going to be that kind of response. And he said, the Lord said to him, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away, that's exile. Okay, this really happened in history. So what happened was there was certainly the Assyrians and all that that meant to the people because they suffered at their hands, but then the judgment of God ultimately with the Babylonians and sacking Jerusalem and carrying people far away into exile, and Jerusalem was just left desolate. The forsaken places are many in the land, midst of the land, and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. So imagine the judgment of God sweeping through like a tornado, like a forest fire, total destruction. That's what's left. These people are going through the motions. They're sticking their fingers in their ears. They'd done so long enough, and it was too late at this point. So, again, this happened in history, but it is a warning to us today. The Lord is under no obligation to save me, to save you. He has mercy on whom he has mercy. So today, if, if you've been indifferent, if you've been bored, if you've been you know, ignoring his word. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts like these people did. Let their destruction be a warning to you. Here's what Ray Ortland said. <laughs> Every week, I got to do no. Um, Fear your own hardness of heart more than anything else. Beware of rigidity, ingratitude, a demanding spirit. Beware of an unmelted heart that is never satisfied. Beware of a mind that looks for excuses not to believe. Beware of the impulse that always finds a reason to delay response. Beware of thinking how the sermon applies to someone else. God watches how you hear his word. So let's be warned, okay? But don't miss the glimmer of hope here right at the end. The holy, the holy seed is its stump. What does that mean? Have you ever seen a large tree that fell down or was cut down? And then as the, the, uh, tr like the stump rots, I've seen this before, you've seen this before, a little sapling, a little tree, like grows up right out of the center. It's amazing. Well, that's the picture here. In fact, we're going to get to Isaiah 11 here in coming weeks. Isaiah 11.1 1 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. It's Jesus. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Okay, so Isaiah's generation was hardened by his preaching, but latter generations like us have been saved by his preaching. 
all because of that holy seed, the shoot that came forth from the stump, the one that's spoken of in Isaiah 53. Flip ahead to Isaiah 53. Page 613. In fact, look at the last verse of of 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. Speaking of Jesus, the servant to come, the suffering servant. And then look at this. He shall be high and lifted up. Oh. Did we hear about that? Did we hear that phrase somewhere else? The Lord is high and lifted up and... Isaiah saw his glory. Here the servant is high and lifted up, and guess what? We're going to see the glory of the Lord with the suffering servant hanging on a cross, revealing the the glory of God's love and his mercy and his kindness. So, who has believed what he's heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? John 12 quoted this. For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him. This is the Lord Jesus right there. And then look down at verse 10. So he bore our griefs, carried our sorrows. All we like sheep had gone astray, verse 6. Each one to his own way, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Then verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. There is the atonement, the atonement for us so that we can approach the throne of God with confidence and boldness because we're covered in the blood of Jesus. So you and me, we're people of unclean lips and hearts. God is white, hot, holy. He's a consuming fire. We dare not trifle with him. If we were to see him, we would be painfully aware of our unholiness. It would be like... We just feel like we're going to disintegrate in the midst of a nuclear explosion intensity of his presence. And here Jesus, God's one and only son, came as a willing servant. Here I am, send me. He came to make atonement for our sin. And on the cross, he underwent the ultimate woe. He took the disintegration that we all deserve so that we could be blessed and made new and whole again. So on the cross, Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He willingly subjected himself to the ultimate disintegration that we would be made whole again, that we would be healed, and that we would be made willing. See, Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations. They were supposed to be a witness, and they failed. And so God sent Jesus, the witness, so that we could be remade, so that we could be made new by the power of the gospel, our sin covered over, and our hearts made new so that we would be willing servants again. Here I am, send me, send me. So Isaiah, he was an example. He not only preaches the message, he lives it here in Isaiah 6, showing the people of Judah, showing us the pathway to restoration and usefulness in the Lord's hands. And we are called to be willing servants. Listen, offering our bodies as a living sacrifice, right? Like Romans 12. 
So if you think about it this way, Isaiah in chapter 6 is saying that the altar of atonement is the key to laying your life down on the altar in obedience. So one, you could say it another way, the first three points are the key to point number four. God's holiness, really experiencing it, our sin, really experiencing it, the atonement, really experiencing it, is the key to being willing. So are you willing? I want to just encourage you with an example of um, sometimes it's helpful to see why willingness is such a good thing, because sometimes it's hard, right? The things the Lord calls us to are hard. So recently, Lori shared a testimony with me um, via email of, of someone that she and Jamie had reached out to, and is this a good one to turn on? Okay. Um, great example of here I am, send me, and I hope that it's an encouragement to you in application of this last point here. Anybody want greater willingness to say, here I am, send me? We're actually going to close with a song that's a prayer. We want tongues that are willing and ready and able to speak of the truth of the gospel. So we're going to sing, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. Uh, maybe just we could start with one, <laughs> like um, some of us. But listen to 1 Peter 2. Listen what we're supposed to do with this grace we've been given through Christ. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Unclean lips, atonement, proclaim his excellencies. So, women, you have an opportunity. Are you willing and ready to be obedient with the ladies in your life that you should be inviting to the tea? It might be hard. It might be uncomfortable. It might be, oh, no, what are they going to think of me? Get out of your comfort zone. Well, get your eyes on a big God. Be honest about your sin. Taste that atonement. Get out there and knock on a door, make a phone call shoot an email, go across the street with a loaf of bread, and ask. That's just one application, but there's lots of more for the rest of us as well. So let me pray, and we're going to pray over oh, a thousand tongues to sing. Oh God, you are so merciful and great, and we pray that you would Make all of the great realities of the gospel realities in our hearts and loose our tongues to sing your praise.